My name is Jenna. Still a freak of nature, part human, part podcaster. Confused? Don't worry. It gets better. Welcome to the Fandalites, the weekly podcast where Brent and I read and talk about the Animorph books. This is book 43, The Test. It's a Tobias POV. Tobias saves a lost child but gets attacked by a regular old eagle. He wakes up in a vet's office and is almost rescued by the Animorphs before a group of Yurk rebels led by Taylor, our old friend Taylor herself, bust in and snag him. Taylor wants the so-called bandits to help dig a tunnel to the Yurk pool so that she can fill it with gas, killing everyone inside. This will allow the rebel Yurks to install a democracy, with Taylor as leader, of course. The Animorphs reluctantly agree, although Cassie conscientiously objects to joining the mission. Axe and Tobias acquire tax and morphs and take turns digging from the gas pipeline to the Yurk pool. Taylor offers to make Tobias her partner as leaders in the, quote, democracy, but he refuses. Just as the tunnel is completed, Tobias has a change of heart and doesn't want to continue with the plan, but Taylor betrays them and blows the line. The Animorphs escape only to find the pool hasn't been gassed out because somebody, Cassie, turned off the flow. Cassie, having contacted the real Yurk Resistance, knew that Taylor was working with Visor 3 to eliminate both the Resistance and the Animorphs all at once. So, Brent, I liked this book. Somewhat which, surprisingly, even though I hate Taylor. Yeah, which is wild, because I thought this book was kind of a mess thematically and had a lot of unearned moments. Oh, tell me about the unearned moments. Literally every time that Tobias is sitting there um, really wrestling with himself about what Taylor's saying and whether he's weak and like maybe he should just give in to Taylor, it plays with the trope that I see a lot in media of the sort of weirdly, I don't, I don't know that it was sexualized in the text, but I feel like I read it <laughs> as not even sexualized necessarily, but romanticized. It was an implication that he had developed a Stockholm syndrome for Taylor while he was, she was torturing him that I don't think we saw in the actual torture. And I don't think, I think Taylor is, is this book was ghostwritten by Ellen Guru, who also wrote uh, 33, 41, 45 and 47. Also every book that Taylor's ever been mentioned in. Yeah. And I think really, I just, I dislike that, that Taylor is Ellen's OC do not steal. Who's like (laughs) Rachel with a goatee from the mirror universe, but like better. And Tobias is kind of hung up on her. Yeah. Yeah. More beautiful. And like shoots sleep powder from a robot arm. (laughs) Oh God. fuck! She does do that. It's even better gas this time. Yeah, definitely better gas, because last time, you know, it was just, it was paralyzed gas, and now it's just like, you, you go to sleep, it's general anesthetic. Yeah. You just spray general <laughs> anesthetic at a person, they fall asleep and don't die, that's how it works, that's why anesthesiologists aren't a job that exists. Come on. <laughs> anyway, I I feel like every moment where it seemed like Tobias was strongly considering joining her and ruling the galaxy as uh 
Lalandra and Xavier Bros. Hmm. Uh, it just it wasn't earned. We saw nothing in the previous encounter with Taylor that made us think that he would want to do anything other than straight murder her. I think that's fair, but you also made the very good argument then convinced me during that episode that he was sublimating his attraction for Rachel through Taylor a little bit because they look so much alike. Kind of, yeah. You argued that, well, you argued that that Taylor is sort of the dark version of Rachel and that Tobias has, uh, that, that she represents sort of the torture that Tobias feels about not being human and not getting to be with Rachel in a human sense. I mean, I that sounds like something I'd say. I don't remember it because I'm pretty sure I was drunk during that episode. But oh no! Well, I remember <laughs> it. I remember it, and I'm telling you. But, so I. But I feel like seeing his shit externalized in one book is interesting. Seeing it in two books is like okay, all right, again. Yeah, that's fair. I I didn't read any of the moments where she was like, "You should rule with me." <laughs> I didn't. I didn't read any of those moments as Tobias actually considering it, um, which might have been a failure in my reading of the text. Uh, but it just it was just like, obviously not Taylor. Obviously not Ellen. I mean, it, it may have just been me putting that together subconsciously with his constant descriptions of how, uh, how much of a smoke she show she is. Yeah, she's, yeah. A, she's a goddamn dime of a yerk. Uh, <laughs> robot arm just makes her more quirky and interesting. <laughs> like like uh, a half die job on a bob haircut on your single Asian character in your series. All right. How how does the fact that Tobias morphs into Taylor when they go to that borders? How does that play into this weird psychosexual fantasy? I am not going to answer that question because <laughs> I plead the fifth. It's 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 I'm going to reveal too much about my inner adolescence. So not not talking about it. I think see I think that was a good interesting moment. I think this book had enough I was like I was very curious from the get go about not so much about the kid who got lost in the woods which I did not care about but about like <laughs> but the poor little deaf child can't hear people yelling for him. Yeah, and then a magical hawk saves him. Like great cover Tobias. Mm-hmm. But I I liked the idea that there was a second group of rebel yerks. Like I was really excited about that that Taylor might have been leading her own f- not peacekeeping resistance but like trying to overthrow Visor 3 resistance. And of course, that is not what it was. But f- for a moment, I was entranced by that. I, and I, I got, I will say, and this is uh, just a testament to how much this podcast has wormed its way into my brain, that when, <laughs> when, <laughs> when the uh, Yerk resistance, before Taylor showed up, the Yerk resistance showed up and they were all wearing like black leather with cool straps which I have to assume is because of the Matrix, right? <laughs> right? I, I think that the fact that Taylor shows up clad in head-to-toe leather so frequently in this book <laughs> seriously supports my point, <laughs> my, my reading, that, th- that this OC Do Not Steal is definitely supposed to be uh, Tobias's alternate choice if he goes dark side. It, 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 my when I read that I was like is that are those Hecate is that Hecate's people is Hecate crossing over I was very excited but it wasn't mm. that because she's ROC do not steal 
I like the idea, though, that those were Hecate's people that just showed up independently of Taylor's plan. <laughs> yeah, they saw that some shit was going down. They saw the same news report that both the Animorphs and the Yerks did. Mm-hmm. And were like, I know where Tobias is at. Let's do this. And, and you know that Hecate's got a leather dude on speed dial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whenever they rescue a new host, uh, ex-host, they take their measurements, they mm-hmm. send them off, they get him a dope trench coat. Also a katana to go with it. God, this is so cool, Brent. They're all wearing the same style of outfits as the X-Men in the first X-Men movie. Oh, yeah, those really dark, classy, yeah, black impenetrable leather, with... leather suits. Exactly so. <laughs> yes, that were super inflexible and made them all look very uncomfortable. Not, not as uncomfortable as Michael Keaton in the first Batman where he couldn't turn his head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bad outfits uh so i don't know i i really i was very intrigued by that i was not super excited to see taylor but i thought (laughs) she was less annoying than in her original book maybe because she's not as prominent and we don't have like eight pages of her just straight torturing tobias it's it's sprinkled out she was more annoying in tobias's um mental flashbacks than Mm. in her physical presence although she's still extremely shallow as a character yeah there's just there isn't a lot to her and i I think that's kind of tobias's point at the end is like he wants there to be more there he wants her to be more complex maybe so that he feels justified in his uh, attraction for her do you think that that ending was added by the editor as sort of a uh textual like in in text hey ellen Hey, Ellen, (laughs) did you see this thing that I changed where Tobias says that he wants this character that you keep using to be more (laughs) three-dimensional? That's what we're publishing, so maybe take that to heart. Uh, That's generous. (laughs) Really? Because I feel like that's the pettiest way possible you could communicate (laughs) that feedback to a ghostwriter. Yeah, you might be right. I I just like, yeah, I like the idea. I like that idea. There's a lot in this book. I think you might be right that this was a little bit of a choppy. It, this is a real stew of a book. It's a lot of things happening. I mean, it, it is a goulash of a book for sure. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk about taxons? Yeah, my goodness. Okay, so we get a lot of sensory information about taxons because Tobias, the POV character, has to morph a taxon. Man, there is a lot to <laughs> digest <laughs> about taxons in this. You the, get it? Sorry, your little giggle. You, you get it? <laughs> Before you said it. D- digest? Like the audio equivalent of you twirling your mustache at me. <laughs> digest? <laughs> <laughs> Stop. You, you get it? Digest? <laughs> Please stop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have fun. Um, so the taxons are real fucked up, huh? Yeah, yeah. They're uh, the, the one that Tobias Morphs seems to be a being of pure hunger. That he he has, seems to have a lot more trouble controlling his taxon morph than Elfing or Arbron or Aloran. Or even Axe, I think, in this book has a better. 
has, a, has a better angle on him. Axe who dug the the oh. weird labyrinthine tunnel structure and then was just going to die. Yeah, you're right. You got me. <laughs> Axe, Axe fucked up real bad. He Oof. fucked up worry worse than Tobias. And, and before we were recording, you sort of countered this by saying that you think that maybe Taylor picked a particularly difficult to control taxon on purpose. Yeah, because Taylor, when she draws them into that weird area where they have to get find the taxon and acquire it, she specifically says, like, yeah, I got an extra big, mean taxon for y'all to deal with. And I think, I mean, the the the, the rest of the Andalites who we saw in the, was it the Andalite Chronicles? Uh, yes. Did have some difficulty controlling the hunger. Oh, two of them if you were recall, native. they got, yeah, yeah. So I think it's their in a low key sense but yeah i think taylor uh put an extra spice on that more for them just to just to just to dig at them and i've been thinking about it since you said that and i think it makes a lot of sense because from hindsight with taylor actually working for viscer three the whole time it's sort of a win no matter what because mm. if they give in and become taxonothlets and eat the rest of the andalite bandits like great <laughs> cool <laughs> and if they don't, then uh, they, they blow up the York Peace Movement. So that's also a win. Yeah, that's a good call. Yeah. And the, the Taxons eat dirt and seem to get some sort of nutri- nutrients out of it. And then it helps them expel this horrible goo. <laughs> that is their waste product, is the horrible Taxon goo. Yeah, it certainly is. That I guess they just exc- excrete through their skin. That is, seems to be the implication. Um, mm. And it, also the fact that they eat soil, they get some nutrients from it, but not enough to yeah. actually survive. And it's described almost like uh, a, a rabbit starvation type situation, the taxid equivalent of that. They'll just keep digging until they starve and die of exhaustion because they're getting mm. something, but they don't feel full. It's not enough. So they yeah. just keep doing it. Yeah, that's real, real fucked up. Tobias has this really interesting insight to the sort of the the tax and POV, which is that they are basically deeply terrified of starving. Yeah. And, and feel like they can never get enough. And I thought that was really fascinating uh, for like just a lot of reasons, because I, I think that's sort of a similar... Uh, this is the most ar- armchair philo- uh, 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 sci- sci- psychology that I could offer, but I've read things about hoarders and people who hoard food because they are concerned about running out. And I think that's an interesting parallel that the Texans don't really have like preserved food, so they can't do that. So they are just always eating just in case. An entire species suffering from genetic food insecurity is pretty <sighs> horrifying yeah i did not think the taxons could get more horrifying but damn this just makes me want the taxon chronicles more it really does god every time you say that i want it more and it 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 becomes less likely with every second into the future that we get <laughs> well i know that the that the tobias is um his interpretation of what he feels in the taxon morph he says that that sort of that fear curdles into evil. But honestly, I feel like this explanation of how the Taxons have this deep seated hunger makes them more sympathetic because mm. 
it's a hell of a uh, evolutionary advantage. Um, not advantage. What am, what am I thinking of? There's there's a term I'm thinking, but basically, if you've got one taxon that eats all of the food because it can't ever feel full, it's always terrified that it's going to run out. Then there's no food for the rest of them. So it's going to have that advantage in passing along its genes. The rest of them will starve to death. Oh, yeah. I was thinking that there was maybe some sort of event in taxon evolution where they were so food deprived that, yeah, yeah, I guess this is what you're saying, that mm-hmm. only only the ones who were so hungry to, enough to cannibalize were able to survive. Yes. And and the ones who did not have the that impulse didn't make it. And now they're just a whole species of hunger. Yeah, there was that pressure to adapt. And <sighs> now that that expression of, of behavior is no longer advantageous, it doesn't fucking matter because it's too late it's there. That's so... That is so deeply horrifying uh-huh. and fucked up. Like, maybe in another 100,000 uh. years, it will manage to work its way out, but who knows? Or, Ugh. or this could be the behavior that they express when they're detached from a living hive. Yeah, uh, yeah, maybe. I was just thinking that the, the mountain taxons would seem to have a better control, so maybe that's... A, a separate species or a separate branch, but you might be right that it might just be a, a living a living hive thing. Yeah, my, my thinking is it it may be um, evolutionarily advantageous for taxons to attempt to eat as much as possible until they can reconnect with the living hive. It may also explain why they will tunnel until they die of exhaustion. Mm. Because yeah, because they're trying to get back to the hive. Exactly. So once they reconnect, then they sort of regain that. They seem to have a a more complete aggregate intelligence when they're connected to the living hive than they do individually. Hmm. So it would make sense that there would be a, a behavioral pressure to reconnect somehow or survive until you can reconnect. Yeah, that does make it less horrifying, except that the Yurks have killed all all but or mo- possibly including the, the mountain hive. Mm-hmm. So that that's just... It might not be an option for the taxon anymore. Yeah, it it is. (sighs) It's still pretty horrifying. It it really sucks for the taxons. And it's I want to see like the extended universe series of books where humanity and the Andalites and the greater galaxy at large deals with the taxons as an equal, because I want to see what it looks like when you're making concessions for a species that has this behavior hardwired into them but didn't ask for that and is otherwise capable of communication that's fascinating because it seems like it would be easy to win them over but difficult to keep them happy Mm -hmm. i don't have great expectations that humans would be able to deal with them for very long without uh full-scale starship troopers style genocide (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. Uh, do you have any more tax and stuff? I can't even. Do you have any more tax and stuff? There's like, it's... man, there's just, uh, we, we got a lot of tax and stuff here, but I think that's sort of, I think that covers most of the tax and stuff. A lot Good, of it, I'm not wanna... sure if this is just this taxon or like a commentary on taxons in general. Yeah, that's fair. Um,. I want to talk about the morality of this book. 
because this it felt very much we, we talked earlier about this we t- it felt very much like a cassie book yeah just because it was all about whether or not they should gas the entire york pool killing all the hosts or not not just gas but fucking gas and explode yeah and, and trust, destroying a big part of the city and, right and trust taylor that it's not going to that it's carefully controlled amounts of gas that's not going to explode the entire city above the gigantic multiple football stadium sized york pool yeah and um and a more sort of talk it through <laughs> kind of talk it through and they're all kind of on board with it more or less, except for Cassie, who's like, no, we absolutely can't do this. Who's almost objectively correct. Yeah. And uh, there was a moment that we had both written down in our notes, which was Axe calling Cassie a hypocrite. And I think you made a really good point, because Marco has done that in the past, but everybody just kind of blows it off because it's Marco. Right, because Mar- Marco's, he's sort of always doing that to everybody. He's a, a, a useful asshole. <laughs> I, lo- I love Marco to death, but he is an asshole to everybody all the time. That's sort of his shtick. Yeah. Axe is just laying it out there like, I don't see how you can make that argument given your previous behavior. And he's sort of the Data or Spock in this situation where he's far enough removed from human that he's not, Cassie knows he's not trying to bait her like Marco would. He's just expressing genuine confusion like he would about why you can't eat cigarette butts. And I think that's really fascinating because Cassie is right and Axe is right. Because, and I mean, that's every, almost every Cassie book is her struggling with this inherent hypocrisy, but also the moral burden of having to continue fighting. And this is really a fever point because the rest of them, by the end of the book, agree with her. Yeah, they they all say Cassie was right. Yeah. Except Rachel. Well, Rachel, but Rachel is the only one we actually see specifically come around because she's, she talks to Tobias and is like, this is still the right thing to do. It definitely is. No, actually, it's not. We can't do this. This is horrible. Like, she has that moment. Well, she does have that moment. But then at the very end, and... Maybe she's just trying to make Tobias feel better. Uh, But she does say, well, you know, if we hadn't done this, then we wouldn't have found out that Visser 3 wanted to destroy the York Peace Movement, and Cassie wouldn't have been able to keep him from doing that. And so really, if you think about it, everything we did was fine, which is an interesting perspective, but I think maybe she's full of shit. (laughs) I thought her argument was more, was less about morality and more about like fate and i don't i don't think she was necessarily arguing that what they were doing was a good thing i i think she was more sort of retroactively saying well we made some bad choices but it didn't go bad so it's okay that's might be splitting hairs that's almost more dangerous of an attitude honestly i don't disagree but i don't like i don't think she's arguing at the end that their plan was good or just or right like i still think she agrees with cassie that this was a a line too far but i think she's Mm -hmm. just sort of like a i think it's just sort of a very rachel opinion which is shrug and move on yeah and not get too bogged down by the details well and she does actually say you just have to keep looking forward which like 
Rachel, I guess, has never read that those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Ugh, she probably has that written on her, her tactical spirit board somewhere. I mean, unless Sun Tzu or Machiavelli said it, I doubt it. <laughs> and that, that points to, I think, an overall trend that I'm seeing more in general, which is that I think Rachel is also becoming much more one-dimensional. Yeah. And part of that is me expressing my frustration about the last book being a Marco book that Rachel was sort of in. Is that <laughs> I feel like we were robbed sort of of our of our Rachel perspective for this cycle of books. You're not wrong. But it it does feel like more and more because our our early Rachel was a really good student and had a spirit board with quotes about war and was very I think it more engaged. Whereas this Rachel, and I don't know if this is because of the writing or because of the actual character arc as being a warrior i feel like she's advocated that somewhat and, and, and just become she's just become the hands and i mean that might be just a reflection of them all sort of fulfilling their role within the group and nothing more but i wish it weren't i mean you're you're right it might just be the emotional damage of of the participation she's had so far where her only two real remaining characteristics are violence and caring about Tobias. Yeah. But it might also just be the fact that these are very small books and the last one <laughs> sort of got robbed of Rachel characterization. And the one before that really sucked with Rachel characterization. And the one before that. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I feel That's like. frustrating. Um, and I, I think we talked about this a little before the show. I, I feel like um, this particular ghostwriter is really interested in Tobias's inner struggles and doesn't really care about any of the other Animorphs. She's not super interested mm. in any of them. Yeah. Uh, because most of them, when we've seen this ghostwriter uh, characterize them, are, are very two-dimensional, except Tobias is really torn about the shit that's going down with her O.C., Although she did pretty much nail Cassie in this. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciated that Cassie, this is one of the few missions that Cassie's outright said, y'all can do this, but I'm not. Yes. And if there was ever a mission <laughs> to put your right? foot down on, right? this is the one. <laughs> and and it's extremely Cassie that despite the fact that she refused to participate, she still stained her soul with mm. the violence against the ear controllers the human controllers in the gas plant in order to save her friends yeah they say it's something like half a dozen humans that she took out on her own yeah to to save her friends slash all of the yurks yurk hosts in the yurk pool and yeah. that is that is well, I, I mean she's clearly devastated i was it. counting aftran as one of her friends oh yeah fair enough yeah because they they do say in this book that Cassie's the only one of them to have befriended a Yurk. Yeah, only one to have morphed a Yurk, too. It, it's so... It's very good. <laughs> See, I really liked that, because it kept me t in tension, because I was like, who turned off the gas? It was probably Cassie, but how did she know to? And and we get this... Because Cassie talked to her, her Yurk resistance yeah. peace movement friends. <laughs> Tidwell and <laughs> Which is not. a good call. Uh-huh. Yeah. And got the, the lowdown on the situation and knew about the betrayal. So that's all very good. I would love a chapter where it's just Cassie doing her shit on the side. It would have been interesting to see a, a Cassie POV chapter inserted into this book, like all of the Marco POV chapters into the last <laughs> Rachel book. But 
it's one of the more interesting choices to have a, a stock. Uh, this sounds bad, but I don't mean it insultingly. A stock Cassie plot going on in the background. Yeah, because we don't ever really see that in any of the other books. Like it, it's, it, it it gets mentioned once or twice that Cassie objects to this plan or that thing, but it it doesn't often have impact yeah. on the actual plot. Here, it's really key. Yeah, it, it's an incredibly big deal to the plot that Cassie refuses to participate in this incredibly terrible plan. That <laughs> oh my God. as time goes on. How how do they not all realize that Taylor's playing them? Because the more times they talk to her, the more times she's just like, yeah, democracy, fine. I, I did say that, didn't I? Whatever. <laughs> right. She becomes increasingly more flippant about the quote unquote democracy that she wants to achieve. Which I thought was very funny. And they're just like, well, we committed to this, so we're going the <sighs> whole way. Yeah, yeah. And part of me wonders if it's not be like if part of me wonders if they hadn't had so many other plots uh, where Cassie was like, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't do this. And they went ahead and did it anyway. Like, it, it almost feels at this point where they've written this script for themselves that Cassie's going to object and the rest of them are going to do it anyway, that they almost didn't want to break that. Oh, man. Do you, are, you, are you suggesting that she's the girl who cried war crime? um god kind of yeah <laughs> yes Brent. i it's, think so it's like that except that if every time she cried war crime it actually was it really was they have this great conversation <laughs> uh, in the food court where they're all talking about this and whether they should do it and jake literally argues for the bombing of civilians it's so bad <laughs> i mean it's a stark break from previous books where we've seen them psychologically try to distance themselves from the damage that they do to human controllers where jake just says well they're yurks though i expect that from marco because marco is the sort of dude who would commit war crimes in order to win if that's the path that he sees being the correct one to win yeah yeah but that's why Marco's not in charge. Jake is supposed <laughs> to be able to say, well, no, Cassie's right about this one. We shouldn't trust this crazy yerk who yeah. tortured Tobias. Uh, right? Tobias is telling us to, but like, fuck that. No. Uh, why would we explode a gas main under the city? Because she assures us that, nah, it's cool. I got people who will regulate the amounts which is not <laughs> i don't think how nat gas works yeah it, it tobias really puts on a brave face but he shouldn't have like no. he should have just trusted his instincts and not done this which is why i part of the reason i didn't like this book because the first time he saw that taylor was involved he just said no fuck you I think that's fair. I, I feel like if in my reading, it was justified, but... Yeah, in my reading, he was like, she tortured me, but also she's a goddamn smoke show. <laughs> I mean, look at how fucking hot she is. So yeah, all right, let's do this. Let's do this. I got a thing for blondes. <sighs> I really like the scene where she was drinking soup out of a mug, talking to him about democracy. That was a weird scene was, that I really liked. It was very bizarre. It was so bizarre, but I really appreciated that about it. 
And I, it, it feels like it was so purposely bizarre to put Tobias off his game. And I feel like it worked. No, it put me off my game, too. You're right. It was explicitly designed. I'm sure Visser 3 uh, very forcefully instructed a subordinate to <laughs> acquire a trailer in a trailer park uh, and also some, some cans of chunky soup. Visser <laughs> 3 is Ted Cruz. Oh, whoa. Whoa, whoa. It's the soup. Follow the soup. <laughs> <laughs> that Campbell's chunky. Good. You follow the soup. Visser three is Ted Cruz. It all makes sense now. It all makes sense now. Does it? I don't know. I <laughs> nothing makes sense in Hell Year 2018, Jenna. That's very true. Uh hey, how much bullshit is it that Tobias morphs from Taxon to kind of Hawk, but then right to Andalite in such a way that Taylor doesn't even see it? They've been continuously devaluing how impressive it was that Cassie managed to maintain <sighs> wings while morphing a fucking whale since that book. Like, literally the book after, they were like, yeah, okay, sure, but, like, this other person can do it, that's fine. And now they're like, well, I mean, Tobias can do it, yeah, why not? Like, are you kidding me? It's really frustrating. It's really it, frustrating. I could feel like the first 30 books were all... Like, it was very special. Like, Cassie had this very special, specific skill. And it was super cool and badass. But then, yeah, they just kind of keep giving it away to the rest of the characters to cover plot holes. She's in a stream, and it's a big enough deal that the Andalites have a special word for it. Right? And they only have special words for a couple things, like this, and Nothlet, and Unsweet. Unsweet, which is uh, a bad haircut. <laughs> It's a shameful haircut. Dude, so unsweet. <laughs> and also, uh, not all Sith, which I assume is a hashtag currently being used to harass the cast of Star Wars. <laughs> uh, but in Andalite refers to someone who can't control their morph. Yep. You had a, a, tr a very trenchant observation about the Andalite language before we started recording. <laughs> well, because there, this book had two weird moments with thought speech. One is which in which Tobias said that he sounded hoarse while he was thought speaking, and I'm like, okay, but it's like your brain voice. Does your brain voice sound hoarse, Tobias? That was weird. But also, it's weird that the Andalites have words that are specific Andalite words because we don't. It really they don't really have a language like it, thought speech is supposed to be like imagery and feelings right i'm gonna address these in order uh <laughs> okay okay that's fair <laughs> number one have your has your inner monologue never felt as exhausted as you are uh i don't know that my inner monologue sounds like me i think my inner monologue sounds like angelica houston wow lightly scolding me uh-huh Okay, that's yeah. that's interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, she does have a pretty smoky voice, so that's a good point in support of what Tobias says. What I'm saying, Brent, is that if I had thought speech uh -huh. and I spoke to you, uh -huh. it would sound like a slightly disappointed Angelica Houston. <laughs> and that would be really great for you. Would it? So, yeah, so sorry. Okay, no, that's yeah. fine. Um <laughs> I definitely have had days where I am so exhausted and hoarse that 
any thoughts I have sort of feel like they're exhausted and hoarse. And I, okay. if I had a thought speak like or X Men like telepathy, uh, I, I feel like I would be projecting my exhaustion and hoarseness to other people. But also, I think that this ties into the fan theory that the two hour limit is entirely a, a mental thing. Mm. Uh, because the, the fan theory, for those who I guess are listening to this as their first episode for some goddamn reason. Every episode is somebody's first um, and last. Uh, the, the, the fan theory goes that the two hour morph is just that you limit is just that you can't recall well enough how your body goes after two hours. And I feel like it ties in very well with that, that your thought speak mm. reflects your physical feeling. Okay. So even even for Tobias, who no longer has a voice at all most of the time? Especially for Tobias, that no longer has a voice most of the time. Because <laughs> everybody else, right? It, it's like a secondary mode of speech. For him, it's become his primary. So he's got to be used to conveying oh. feeling in his thought speak. That's fair, and it's his only way of really expressing emotion because of his hawk face. Right, because he can't change his, his hawk face. His literal hawk face, yeah. His only other method of expressing emotion is shitting on somebody. <laughs> Which is pretty good, actually, right, it's, I mean, as it's, far as expression goes. It's disapproval, but yeah. <laughs> uh, and then point number two, which is the Andalite language, I assume that this language predates them morphing themselves into their perfect form. Oh right! I forgot that the I forgot that the Andalite body, as we know it mm -hmm. today, is just a composite of a bunch of other animals. Right. So yeah, you're right. They probably had before they all had to to use thought speech. They probably had a language. They morphed away their torso because who needs it? Right? I don't. I don't. I, would, I feel like I'd be much more of a force of nature if I did not have a torso. I can definitely keep my stomach in my horse body. <laughs> I like the idea of being able to touch my toes without like moving my arms because my arms are at my hips. If it's I, handy. If I could do that, I would have the presidential physical fitness award <laughs> seven years running. <laughs> Nostalgia is a drug. Oh fuck, you're not wrong. <laughs> um, what else about this book, Brent? Uh, a couple things. One. Taylor has an obscure death, which, like I mentioned in in the pre-roll, uh, is like Lord Verminard in Dragonlance. Yes, and I said, nobody knows what you're talking about, Brent. And and I replied that there will be three people who do, because the, uh, the first edition Dragonlance modules were the initial introduction of what they called obscure deaths into Dungeons & Dragons, where the authors advised major villains like that to die by falling into a pit or <laughs> uh, off a cliff or something much like uh, Visser 1 in mm. her last appearance in a Marco POV book uh, wh where you can bring them back later with some explanation that you've come up with for why they didn't actually die. And granted, in the original Dragonlance modules and books, they did this by having him show back up with a mask and some whips and the name hmm. Verm Lives backwards. Hmm. 
terrible. Yeah, it was real bad. But that's <laughs> that's my touchstone for that. And there will be at least one other person in the world who gets that. And that's who I'm doing this podcast for. If you are that person, would you tweet at the at Fandalite's Twitter account just so that I know you exist and uh, that this isn't just an extended uh, 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 hallucination of Brent's? Come into my brain. <laughs> Live no, there you. for a while. Uh, is Angelica Houston in there? No. Pass. Fair. <laughs> fair. Harsh, but fair. You know... <laughs> You know. What? What do I know? Y- you know. <laughs> what else? Is there anything else about this book, Brent? <laughs> uh, so this book mentions the Anadi planet, which is super timely for the last uh, email that we had right. about all of the military tactics. Right, because the the Anadi system was supposed to be one of the reasons why the Andalites weren't hanging out on Earth. And turns out the Yerks fucked that up somehow. Yeah, we don't know how, but Taylor references that the the references Visor Three. No, Taylor references the bungling on the Anadi planet, but we don't really get any more information, which is a shame because I'm very curious. I want a whole Anadi Chronicles. <laughs> You're just desperate for more Animorph books. Are not these <sighs> sixty plus books that we've will have read in the future enough for you, Brent? Not really. No, I want. I want Kay Applegate and Michael Grant to be able to revisit the series with two decades of hindsight. That might be the only reboot I would actually be very excited to see. Like, if they did a actual time past and, and, and the Animorphs are, like, maybe in their, like, early 30s and are, like, struggling with, with making it in the world today, uh, that would be cool, I guess. Like a, like a Days of Futures Past, but for Animorphs? Yeah, and for us. So nothing else on this book, then? I I did want to mention that on page 23, Tobias makes a very strange, strange simile, where he describes uh, Rachel's claws and her bear morph as being like giant steel rigatoni. (laughs) I'm going to get a Google rigatoni just to remember what it looks like. It's not pointed. It's not sharp. I can tell you that much. That's a weird, weird analogy. Everything is pasta. Everything is pasta. That's our next podcast. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. So this has been Book 43, The Test. Yes, thanks for listening to Fandalites. Uh, We we love all of you, but not as much as we love food. (laughs) Next week is Book 44, The Unexpected, which is a Cassie POV. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you want to write us... You can reach us at fandalites at gmail.com. You can hit us up on Twitter at fandalites. You can find our Tumblr at fandalites.tumblr.com uh, or visit our website at fandalites.com or our sister site at andalitetruth.org. <laughs> Thank you to Dustin Adele for the use of his theme music for our intro and outro. Uh, and until next time, remember nostalgia is a drug. <laughs> <laughs>